This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. I'm Joss, and this is Reading Women, a podcast inviting you to reclaim the bookshelf and read the world. Today, I'm talking to Helen Huang about her latest book, The Heart Principle, which is out now from Berkeley Romance. You can find a complete transcript of this episode on our website, readingwomenpodcast.com, and don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. Today, I am bringing you an interview with an author that is near and dear to my heart, Helen Huang. When I read her debut novel, The Kiss Quotient, I laughed and cried, and something felt so comforting about it. I got to talk to Helen about her third novel, The Heart Principle, which is the story of Anna's son, our protagonist, who is a violinist, and she becomes massively successful after going viral on YouTube. But she finds herself burnt out from trying to replicate that oh-so-successful performance. Her long-term boyfriend then tells her that he wants an open relationship, and she decides to find some men to have one-night stands with when she meets Quan, our love interest, and he is so wonderful, he accepts her unconditionally, and they find themselves falling for each other unexpectedly. When Anna is navigating her burnout, she also talks to her therapist about what she's experiencing and finds herself upon a surprise autism diagnosis and begins research about that diagnosis. In my conversation with Helen, we talked about being an autistic woman in an Asian family and how the expectations can interact to affect people's mental health and can lead to burnout. We also talked about the process of diagnosis that Anna went through in the book and the responses that she got when she told people that she is autistic. And of course, we talked about Anna's budding romance with the wonderful, so lovely, supportive Quan. Oh my gosh, I just love Quan. <laughs> he was alongside Anna every step of the way and was an unwavering companion as she navigated her burnout um, and being a caregiver for her dad, who actually falls ill over the course of the story. But first, before the interview, let me tell you a little bit more about Helen. Helen Huang is that shy person who never talks, until she does. And then the worst things fly out of her mouth. She read her first romance novel in eighth grade and has been addicted ever since. In 2016, she was diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder in line with what was previously known as Asperger's syndrome. Her journey inspired the Kiss Quotient. She currently lives in San Diego, California with her husband, two kids, and pet fish. And without any further ado, here is my interview with Helen Huang. Hi, Helen, and welcome to the Reading Women podcast. Hello, thanks for having me. My gosh, thank you so much for being here and congratulations on the release of your most recent novel, The Heart Principle. Thank you. Thank you very much. If you could please introduce yourself and your book a little bit more for our listeners. So I, I think just about me, I'm a romance author. That's the most important thing. Um, my latest book, The Heart Principle, is about a violinist who experiences burnout after a performance goes viral on YouTube and how she comes back from that. 
So in the author's note, you mentioned that although the book is fiction, it is also part memoir. And I would love to know a little bit more about the process of putting such a personal story on paper. So I guess this is a bit of a long story. Um, So just like Anna, uh, I was trapped compulsively writing and rewriting the beginning of this book, The Heart Principle. It took me three years from start to finish uh, to finish, three years to write the book. Um, But I think for the first two years, I was just rewriting the first chapter compulsively, nonstop. I think I wrote a hundred different chapter ones and I, I just couldn't get out of the mindset that it wasn't good enough, it wasn't perfect enough, and that people were going to say things, that I was going to disappoint people. Um, and I think that pressure uh, combined with, you know, life event, events that happened, um, you know, with my mom, they combined and I ended up getting really sick uh, mentally. And this book, which kind of made me sick, was also the avenue that I kind of, that I used to get better. Um, And so I was, as I was climbing out of like this really deep depression and burnout, I used the book to help me understand why I got there. I used it to um, explore all these feelings of, um, things that I hadn't been able to communicate uh, in my real life. And it was, um, the book was just my way of, of, of climbing out of the sickness, I think. So it became this thing that I dreaded, but also it became something that ultimately, I do believe it healed me. Yeah, that was the process. It, it made me sick. It helped me get better. And, and I ended up sharing a lot of my personal experiences in it to, to kind of just vent, to get it out so that I could move on. Oh my gosh. I, I love where this book falls maybe into the span of your life and your writing journey as well. And I think that, so in the book, we know that Anna, she's going to regular therapy sessions with her therapist. Um, Her therapist suggests that she may be autistic. And then she goes home and she does her own research. And I'm wondering, is this process of being diagnosed as autistic, is this typical? And is there anything that you wish was different about the process? So um, Anna's process was not my process. Uh, I you know, she, she has this surprise diagnosis that kind of just pops up because her, her therapist sees it. Um, but m- my personal experience was that I was reading and researching on my own and, and I came to the conclusion that I was, well, I, I couldn't conclude, but I was pretty sure I was on the spectrum. And so what I did was I, I went out and I looked for a therapist um, to so I could talk to her and see if she thought, was that me? And after she agreed with me, I still couldn't, I still wasn't comfortable enough with that. And I went and I, I saw a psychiatrist so that I could get a more official diagnosis. And 
I don't know what I would want to be different about the process. Most of the hard parts were how other people <laughs> looked at the diagnosis. So it wasn't the process itself, but just how other people accepted it afterwards. But I do know that when I was researching the book, because I didn't know what it was like to have a kind of surprise diagnosis, I spoke to a family friend who had actually received a surprise autism diagnosis in marriage counseling <laughs> and from their therapist. And um, he said that it changed his life. And it, it, it was just something that just came out so out of the blue for him anyway, um, and that it's really positively impacted his marriage, his work, and uh, everything after that. I feel like it can be so affirming to receive a diagnosis to just explain all the things that you've experienced in your life. Like, how does this actually match up with my experience? And it actually can sometimes take away some of those labels of like, am I weird? You know, like, am I just different from everyone? And, and, and you know, it is different, but it doesn't necessarily mean like a bad different or, you know, anything like that. So it can be so affirming. But kind of like you were saying, you know, it's one of the hardest parts is to kind of gauge other people's responses to when you tell them that you're autistic or neurodivergent. And I feel like we see that in the book um, with all the different, I don't know, types of responses that Anna receives when she starts to tell people. Yeah, it's interesting to me because I feel like when I share the diagnosis with other people, what what I'm hoping to achieve is acceptance, but also understanding, I think. Um, and so that we can work together to make life easier. Uh, because I know that when I have, you know, a meltdown or I burn out or something, it's almost always because I've worn myself down trying to please people in my life, you know, family members and whatnot. And so when I share this, I'm hoping to, you know, establish some kind of groundwork that we could use to work so that I don't get sick anymore. And when I share and people say, oh, but you don't, you don't look autistic, um, which I think they always mean as kind of a, a compliment, you know, uh, but it, it never feels like a compliment because it's not what I was looking for at all. It's just, yeah, the how people respond can be extremely disappointing uh, because it, it's not something that I ever share. So I can hear, oh, no, you're not, if that even makes sense. Oh, my gosh. I, I feel like it totally makes sense. And, and I feel like a really common response is, you know, my friend's son is autistic or, you know, I've seen this movie where there is an autistic person, whether it be something on Netflix or, you know, something like that, where whereas, you know, in, in reality, there is so much that is flawed about, I guess, the current whatever is out there research about autism and autistic folks from the sample population to the folks doing the research and and everything kind of under the sun. So it can be very, I don't know, invalidating almost when you get the response of, oh, you don't look autistic, or maybe you don't look like this other person that I know that is autistic as well. Yes. 
Yes, and I, I, it's really frustrating because, you know, I, when my neighbor's son is autistic, but he is completely different than me. And I haven't been able to share with my neighbor, even after living here for more than two years, that I am also on the spectrum <laughs> because I just, mm -hmm. I'm so afraid that he's going to say, no, you're not. <laughs> <laughs> where and and I don't want it to be something that I have to defend to people because uh, it it shouldn't have to be that way. Uh, I wish that we could um, just be so much more accepting of each other in this regard. Because when we share it, it's it's so that we can work together and and just let's everyone be healthy and understand each other <laughs> rather than you know comparing and invalidating others. Right, exactly. I, I think maybe one of the main purposes sometimes in sharing is like, hey, let's work together. This is how we can do this together without me burning out or having to mask all the time or having to appear neurotypical. Um, and it, it's so unfortunate that a lot of times the responses that we get are things like, I'm not sure, this is what my friend's kid is doing going to this type of therapy. You know, you should try this too. And it's just like, that's really not what I'm getting at. And it's yeah. It's very dejecting to kind of hear those things and, and makes maybe people more hesitant to share. Yes, that, that's how I feel. And, and I think it, it really comes down to a lack of awareness of how broad the spectrum is. And I guess um, perhaps it comes to functioning labels, which a lot of autistic people dislike them. And I think this kind of might be why, because it, it implies that if you're high functioning, that you are kind of invalid somehow, like that your autism isn't important or that it doesn't affect your life. Whereas I just, it's not true. It, it just means that you don't need as much help as other people, but you still have real issues that you're working on. Right. And, and I feel like kind of like we see, you know, in the book, um, when we kind of refer to functioning labels, it puts so much emphasis on the functioning, you know, whereas like, it's there's so much more going on underneath the surface than what we can produce or how we can appear to function. Yes, exactly. Gosh. Anyways, <laughs> I, I feel like we see in the book the one person that maybe has a less than optimal response is Priscilla, Anna's older sister. I was wondering <laughs> if you could maybe tell us a little bit more about their relationship and, and maybe her response to Anna. What I was hoping to... Um, accomplish with Priscilla is um, to show how family dynamics and culture can kind of be responsible for or perhaps exacerbate um, the this masking that goes on. I think that um, one of the, one of autistic women's biggest uh, strengths is their ability to mask because we, you know, we want to uh, appear neurotypical. We want to please the people in our lives. Um, we want to fit in, um, but it's it's so unhealthy for us. And and I think, um, and I don't I don't know if this is. I, I hesitate to say this, but I think that in Asian culture, this might be worse. Um, because we, we get so much um, pressure to, to, 
to please our elders, to please our um, our parents, our older family members, uh, siblings, and it, it's it's just built into the just the fabric of everyday life, and that hierarchy is so it's so strict, I think, and it just for me as as like a younger sibling. I really struggle um, with people pleasing because I've just been, I've been trained to be this way my whole life to listen and to, to be what is expected. Um, And I think that that was, it's actually not been healthy for me as someone who's on the spectrum because it, it, it demands um, more sometimes more than I have to give. And, and so with Priscilla, who's this older sister who is um, constantly demanding a certain level of success or a certain level of obedience and compliance, I, I thought that that was a way to show how bad that, that relationship was for her, for Anna. You know, I think that makes so much sense because a lot of times in Asian cultures and especially in Anna's family here, um, and we'll talk about this in a second, but she does eventually end up taking on a caretaking role. Um, And even in that role, it's layered with so much duty to the family and duty to save face, as a lot of folks say. But also combined with that, you know, some folks from Asian cultures are either first generation or second generation immigrants. And along with that comes this need to prove sometimes that, you know, we can make it in the U.S., you know, and we can live up to standards. And a lot of times that does come with this high need to function or appear like we are achieving and functioning. And so on the outside, sometimes it looks like there's this huge emphasis on achievement and on what we can produce. And that combined with the duty to appease certain people in the family is a recipe for really high burnout rates, I think. Uh, I agree. Yeah, definitely. I I know that success was for my mom. uh, It it was so important that that we be achieving and we can reach the top levels of (laughs) yes and the pressure was unrelenting um, to be that way to prove that we had made it or that she had made it and I yeah it can't it was not not good (laughs) No, absolutely not. And and for folks that are, I'm not sure, maybe like conditioned to mask, you know, by the neurotypical demands of society, that is also not a great recipe for, for healthy mental health. No, I can't be. Yeah. No, definitely not. Well, so Anna also ends up uh, falling into a caretaking role in her family along with Priscilla and their mom uh, because their dad um, eventually falls ill in the book. And this is all in blurb, so no spoilers here. Um, but how does this uh, change or amplify their existing family dynamics? I I would say that it amplified the existing dynamics there. Um, and and I what I really wanted to show there is how deep unhealthy it can be um, to to mask and to continue disregarding your mental health when you know it's demanded of you uh, because of you know family family dynamics and it, just life I guess um, 
because that, and that was my experience when my, you know, people have fallen sick in my family, more than one, my grandma and then my mother, and we had to take care of her. And, and I think um, this dynamic where you, you have to prove that you are a good daughter that, or a good person in society, uh, regardless of what you actually can healthily give is harmful, I think. And I wish that there things were set up in a way that people could could give based more on what they had to give rather than what they're supposed to give. Right. My gosh, absolutely. So switching gears a little bit, I really want to talk about him before we get to the end of our interview. But of course, we have Anna's relationship with Quan, which who is just so amazing. I love Quan. Could you tell us more about his character and, and their relationship a little bit? Um, so, uh, yeah, I, Quan is, he turned out being this character that I never thought I was going to write. He just showed up <laughs> on the page <laughs> in the first book, uh, The Kiss Quotient. And he just, um, he was just so sweet from the very start. And I loved him. And I, that was, it was really fun that he kind of just came out of nowhere and he surprised me. Um, and he always seems to kind of come into the story in a way where he kind of saves the day. He's a super sweet guy. And when I was sickest, my husband was kind of like that. He was um, the one who was there with me. And he he wouldn't solve my problems for me, but it was so important that he was there. And I wanted to show that side of love um, in this book, because I think it's not really talked about um, in romance novels very often, or it's not depicted in romance novels, um, how, how love can really get you through hard times and how important it is to have somebody there who is on your side. Um, because I, I, I really had a rough time with family members who were supposed to love me. Um, and the one who was really there um, helped me more than, than, you know, my family members at that time. So, yeah, I, I just wanted to show with him what it means to have a good partner and what it looks like. You know, I, I really love that, and I truly love Juan. He's such an amazing character. I was <laughs> like, wow, this is a great guy. I really enjoy him. Um, but but I think that one of the things that, that you were saying is that, you know, he he wasn't there to, like, provide solutions. You know, he was just there as, like, a companion. He was there as a partner. He was there as, like, a steadfast person alongside Anna. And that's so important, right? Because I feel like a lot of times when, when we end up in burnout or, you know, I don't know, our mental health is really poor – that people are like, oh my gosh, you should just do this, right? Kind of like we were talking about before, you should just try this therapy, you know, like my son had. And, <laughs> you know, that's really not the point. Like when we get to that space, I feel like there's maybe another level of care and companionship that is necessary and that is helpful at that point. And I'm so glad that that you were able to show that with Quan, even though, you know, he started off just appearing in the Kiss Quotient. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. 
So um, another relationship that Anna has um, is with her violin. I know that we talked about this a little bit at the beginning, but I, I know how terrible it can be to be stuck in kind of like this creative block, this loop of just never ending, like needing to perform or needing to produce and not being able to at that at that moment. But but how did she want to navigate telling this part of her story and, and why was it important to you? It became very important um, as, as the the structure of the story was really firmly taking place in my mind um, because that was, it was such a big part of what I was personally dealing with, uh, you know, since I, I was uh, basically Anna's creative block is a thin metaphor for my own writer's block that I was struggling with. And it, it was because, you know, the, my first book, um, was much more successful than I thought it was going to be. It it took off in a way that I wasn't prepared for. And afterwards, I, all I wanted was to, you know, recreate that so that I couldn't disappoint everyone. And trying to create while in that mindset I think is extremely bad. (laughs) I think um, I had to make a conscious effort to come down to to narrow in on the real reason why I write um, and to to focus on the, the story that I need to tell rather than the story that people want to hear. Yeah, it just turned out being that in order to to write, you know, this a good story for me, but what I needed to write, it had to be, it ended up having to be my personal story, the one that I was living through. And so that's how it came to be on the page there. Oh my gosh. Totally. I, I, I just feel so like grateful that the story is on the page. And number one, I am, I'm just so glad that this was so helpful for you, like in your writing journey and your mental health journey and that we got to see it and that we're privy to it on the page now. So I think it's pretty great. And Anna and Quan are pretty great too. Thank you. I, you know, I, I'm not, um, I try to focus on rather than, you know, the, the financial success or bestseller lists and all that. Um, I just try to focus on the few people that it, that the book does speak to. Um, Cause if it's, you know, one person or if it's five people, that's still, you know, five whole people. <laughs> and that's a big deal. It's, it's um, better than writing and, deleting. My gosh, that's so true. And, you know, I I feel like especially maybe for those, it's definitely more than five people, but for those people that your book speaks to, you know, it it just means so much to have a character like Anna and and a character like Quan alongside her in romance, you know, Um, because I feel like a lot of books that focus on neurodivergence just focus on neurodivergence and that is the plot but just to show that Anna is a whole character you know with family dynamics with a loving relationship I think is also just so nice to see as well wow thanks I think that's um that's interesting that um the neurodivergence isn't the whole story and I think when I was writing what I was trying to show was that it's just a part of 
who a person is and but also how interconnected everything is because that's one thing that I I saw over and over was how you know the way I was raised it combines with my autism and it created this person that's me and then I have these problems that result like burnout um, because of those other factors and how the family dynamics come in and it just it made this whole situation that was, it was like a spider web <laughs> where everything touched and you would, if you put your foot on one strand, everything else rings, um, which I, I haven't seen happen in my other books quite in the same way. Right. Absolutely. It's like, it's not the whole story, but it does inform a lot of things that happen. And I think that's, you know, when, when we meet neurodivergent people and also like neurotypical people in real life, right? It's not that these things exist in a vacuum, but, but kind of like you said, right, you step on one strand and, and everything else rings. So I, I just really saw that in Anna's journey. So I really enjoyed that. Um, so I'm also wondering at a certain part in the book, Quan brings over some food for Anna and her family, and there is a bowl of particularly delicious sounding wonton soup. <laughs> what for you makes the perfect bowl of wonton soup? So it's multiple things. I think the soup, it needs to be good. Um, but also for me, the noodles, I love noodles. Um, so if I had to live without noodles, I would be a broken woman, um, but yeah, I love like wide egg noodles that, that are, you know, like the flat wide egg noodles. Those are my favorite. And like, if you can find them fresh, that's even better. Um, and I think it's really important that you have like chives and dried onions and, and most places will, will provide like vinegar and jalapeno too. That, and of course, like nice meaty wontons. <laughs> But in the oh gosh. in the book, they also had fried chicken with it, which is something some places do. My gosh, that really resonates. <laughs> I re I really enjoy those noodles. I really enjoy all those garnishes. And yeah, I was like fried chicken. I mean, personally, I don't have fried chicken with my wonton soup, but I definitely enjoy fried chicken in general. So, <laughs> my sister's restaurant they serve it with fried chicken. Oh my and gosh, it's it's insanely delicious <laughs> oh my gosh that sounds so good is it like bone-in fried chicken or yeah, is it like yeah, like a, okay. a whole um like a thigh I think yeah it's 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 just ridiculously good and um like the whole thing sometimes they'll serve it with the chicken on top but like they provide a plate so you can put it on the side <laughs> <laughs> Oh my gosh, that sounds so good. It sounds amazing. I will definitely have to have fried chicken with my next bowl of wonton soup. Yeah, I, I love, I love wonton. I think wonton noodle soup is probably one of my favorite dishes ever. <laughs> I can eat it like every day. Well, it, if it didn't like totally throw my sodium balance off every time. Oh my gosh, totally. I feel like it's one of those comfort things, you know, because I, I feel like, I mean, just personally, like when I enter burnout, you know, it's hard to try new things, especially when foods are touching one another. <laughs> it's, it's hard to like try new things. It's hard to be like, oh yeah, I want to like try this new restaurant. I feel like wonton soup is like the perfect bowl of, of burnout soup. <laughs> yeah, I think so. It's always good and so hearty and warm. So lovely. I love it. <laughs> well, maybe the last question that we can have here is what is on the docket that is next for you? 
So this story that I've been playing with, um, the next one is kind of inspired by the movie. I don't know if people have seen it. It wasn't like a huge hit, but um, it's called Lars and the Real Girl. Uh, it stars Ryan Gosling. <laughs> and it's he in the book, or not book, in the movie, he buys a blow up doll and he pretends that she is his girlfriend and he puts her in his car. He drives her around. He has dates with her and it's, it was just so out there and, and what a fun concept. And you, you kind of, in the movie, learn why he's doing this and, and see how he progresses from this blow up doll to a real girlfriend in real life to having one in real life. And, um, I just, I thought that was really fun and I, I kind of wanted to try something similar. Um, so that that's tentatively the next thing, but I've also been playing with the idea of, of writing a fantasy romance. Um, oh my gosh. Something Asian themed. Cause I, I love, what are they called? They're uh, like the martial arts fantasy drama type things <laughs> oh my gosh totally totally I, I know exactly what you're talking about <laughs> yeah so I I love you know I grew up on those and and I and I was thinking you know if I want to write something just for me um what would it be and I think it would be something like that that's just out there and crazy and fun and something I haven't seen in a book at least not <laughs> in the U.S. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I had a, uh, a talk with the publisher. Originally, I was um, contracted to write contemporary romances for Michael's sisters. So he's got the five sisters. Yes. And after getting horribly burnt out with the heart principle, I just, I came I, I don't think I can write those five books. And and the publisher agreed that the next one can be something of my choice. So we'll see what it is. If I'm going to write this Lars and the Real Girl type story or if it's going to be a fantasy romance. Oh my gosh. I mean, the two could not be any more different, but I would be equally excited for both. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. But I also... Um, I'm not writing any more autism books after this. Mm -hmm. At least that's tentatively my plan um, because I feel like I've, I've done enough and I, I really want to see other autistic authors writing stories and sharing their perspectives. So it can't just be one person. Totally. Oh my gosh. I, I, I can't wait to see what comes next from you, whether it's our friend Lars and the Real Girl or whether it's some <laughs> wonderful martial arts fantasy romance. I feel like I know a lot of people that, that would really gravitate, really gravitate to that because it is totally things that we grew up on, you know, and, and I, I think that that would be so nice and nostalgic and kind of, kind of like that bowl of wonton soup, you know, when we can't just try something new, yeah. <laughs> something to go back to. Yeah, I was, well, I was watching one recently, a martial arts fantasy kind of thing. And there's always a, like this big central love story in it. And, um, and I was thinking, why, 
people are missing out. <laughs> Why haven't they seen these? <laughs> Why aren't these like Game of Thrones? <laughs> I know, right? They're they're all missing out. <laughs> they are so maybe we can do something about that. Fingers crossed. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Well, Helen, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. And again, congratulations on the recent release of The Heart Principle. Thank you. Uh, I've enjoyed talking to you and wishing you good health and mentally and physically and happiness. All right. Thank you so much, Helen. And that's our show. I'd like to thank Helen Huang for talking with me about The Heart Principle, which is out now from Berkeley Romance. You can find her at HelenHuang.com and on Twitter and Instagram at HHuangWrites, W-R-I-T-E-S. Many thanks to our patrons whose support makes this podcast possible. This episode was produced by me, Joss, and edited by Kendra Winchester. Our music is by Mickey Saito with Isaac Green. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at The Reading Women. Thank you all so much for listening. Thank you.